Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Four noble truths, and uh, hopefully I'll present them in such a way that will make them uh, useful in your own endeavors in life. So the first truth... Uh, has been widely mischaracterized in our contemporary culture. People have heard that the Buddha said something along the lines of life is suffering. The Buddha said no such thing. He simply said that in life there is what was called dukkha. Now what is dukkha? Dukkha is a word that means all kinds of emotional discomfort. So he's not saying that all of life is uncomfortable or painful. He's simply saying that in life, it's inevitable that you and I will experience at times distress and discomfort. And if you really disagree with that, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Good luck. I have no idea how to... uh... If you really think you can navigate through life without having times where you experience... uh, you know, times of darkness and discomfort, well, good for you. Um, In the First Noble Truth, the Buddha said, in life, there is old age, sickness, death, there is being separated from people we love, and there's being stuck with people we definitely do not love, and there's just times where we won't get whatever we want. So we'll be frustrated And then he goes on to give this list of negative emotions, which he says are also inevitable. He goes through this list of there will be sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, and so forth. So what the Buddha is saying is that no matter how you, no matter how smart, clever, uh, no matter how, you know, beautiful or Uh, no matter how many uh, tools, gifts, uh, uh, no matter how well you are uh, in life, that there's no way around that you're going to experience painful emotional experiences. That's not to say that it'll always be there. It's just to say that these are inevitable universal human experiences and there's no way to escape the fact that that will be a part of life. Now, why is this? Why is it that we have to, at times, experience really uncomfortable, negative, painful, distressing phases of our life? We all have to know loneliness and sadness and frustration and anger and, and loss and shock and disgust and grief. Why are these inevitable? Well, from a philosophical perspective, the Buddha has argued something called idipakiyata. You don't have to know what that means. <clears throat> the argument in this present, in this, what he proposed is that in order for you to know pleasure or happiness or joy or elation, the very fact that you know what pleasure is means you also have to know, by definition, what uncomfortable experiences are. There's no possibility that you can have one categorical experience without by very its very nature to have the exact antithesis of that experience as well. 
You cannot know what black is unless you know it white, day or night, hot or cold. The very existence of any emotional category or type presupposes its antithesis by its very nature. Now, that's a philosophical argument. But today, we could take a far more nuanced approach, which is that uh, neuropsychology has shown that all emotions serve vital uh, purposes helping us to survive. Every emotion that human beings are capable of had as its roots uh, uh, innate survival mechanisms or behaviors in our past. What is a negative or positive emotion? Well, it's something that links an experience in your life with three things. One, a feeling in your body. So when you meet someone you love, there's a feeling of, you know, energy flowing up, your chest opens up, there's a sense of elation, your mind feels open, you, there's a sense of dropping your guard. <clears throat> so that's a somatic experience. And then there's an action impulse. That action impulse is to run, to connect, to smile, to hug, to embrace, to laugh, to do something that solidifies this, the attachment bond and to create a resonant exchange with that person. And the third is you have an unspoken emotional belief that's activated by that experience. People actually like me, to quote Sally Field. I think that's who said that famous line. So there's emotional underlying beliefs that are also triggered by emotional events. But just as there's positive emotions, there's also negative emotional experiences that also link somatic markers, action impulses, and unspoken emotional beliefs. For example, when we go through a breakup with someone we love or we care about, the stomach tightens, the chest contracts, the shoulders clench and tighten, the head instinctively looks down. We go into the physiological startle position that children go into when they are abandoned by a, a caregiver. The action impulse is to cry or to, to plead or to uh, protest or to take some action to make the abandonment stop. And the unspoken belief that might be triggered is there's something unlovable about me. I'm broken. I'll never find true happiness. So depending upon the situation, we'll have entirely different somatic markers, entirely different um, impulses, and entirely different unconscious beliefs that are activated. And that's why we have so many different moods and so many different self-states and why we can act in ways that are totally incompatible at times with our core beliefs because situations trigger different you know, perceptions, somatic markers, impulses, and beliefs. All emotions are vital. They all serve purposes. If you try to repress your anger, you will not be able to set boundaries in your life, and people will walk all over you. Because in, if you do not have the ability to process and know when you're angry and know when you're hurt by someone, you will not be able to take adaptive actions to protect yourself in that relationship. 
So when we disempower in a misogynist culture women of their anger, we disempower them of their ability to say, no, this is not okay, stop, you can't treat me this way. And when we disempower men of the ability to express sadness, as other men do, they sort of inhibit sadness, then men have a real trouble processing and resolving losses in their life. They just jump from one relationship often to another, to another, burying the feeling rather than processing the loss and having any kind of clarity from the experience. So if you disempower someone of their emotions, you wind up living a stilted life. If you can't feel uh, fear, you'll be stuck in relationships that will be threatening or you'll be in unsafe situations in your life because you won't know when to leave. So every negative emotion serves a vital purpose. There's absolutely no role in removing negative emotions. The role is not to try to escape our feelings. So the second truth is that the bulk of our suffering, the needless suffering in life, is not caused by these negative emotions, is not caused by these uncomfortable experiences of growing old or becoming sick or being even stuck with unlikable people at times or unlikable presidents with unlikable administrations and unlikable senators and so forth. Uh, the real key is that when we experience suffering, which is largely an internal experience, it's a physiological, emotional state of being that's uncomfortable, we abandon the experience and we try to suppress it by clinging or acquiring or accumulating something external. So we abandon our felt experience and we go off and we look around and we try to grab onto something that will make the uncomfortable emotions go away. We essentially leave, we are primed to try to repress our core emotions rather than learn from them and integrate them. We are primed to try to just make it all stop. So what do we do when we experience dukkha? Sorrow, lamentation, grief, loneliness, frustration. Well, some of us seek food to create the feeling of being loved. Some of us shop to create the feeling of I've got power, that I matter, that I have some solidity in the world. Some people text because it makes them feel there's other people out there that are still uh, interested in me or they go on social media and post something uh, addictively on Instagram, again, to create that feeling of being seen by others. Some of us will turn to Tinder and sex as a way to create, again, the feeling of being important, likable, attractive to others. Some of us will turn to work. Some of us will become preoccupied in thought and will start worrying or start attaching to thoughts about fantasies of the future. All of these have one thing in common, whether it's sex, food, shopping, drinking, taking drugs, texting, sex, or work. It's about abandoning our felt internal state of being, our inner lives, and looking for something that will make all of the emotional state, the feeling, the, the, the experience go away. 
suppress it. I do not want to feel my dukkha, my discomfort. I want to get rid of it. And in the second noble truth, that it's this very action of trying to suppress or escape suffering that causes all of life's needless misery. That if we didn't try to escape the sad feelings, the pain, the loss, the grief, the frustration, if we learn to simply turn towards it, that we would be far happier. But instead, our addictive tendencies to escape, to suppress, to navigate around, to avoid, <coughs> is what causes all of the, the bulk of our suffering, and all of that suffering that it causes is, is not necessary. So why is it, you might say, why is it that trying to escape, repress, suppress, get rid of my loneliness, my uh, feelings of powerlessness, why is that causing so much suffering? Well, a number of reasons. One, all of the things we seek, whether it's shopping or Tinder or, you know, uh, food, all they do is raise dopamine for a little while. And the dopamine makes us feel important and lovable and it makes it feel like we matter. And then dopamine in about a half an hour goes away. And it's, if that's not cruel enough, you need more and more dopamine, mean, need more and more stimuli to create the same hit of dopamine over time. A great example of it, there was a study that I think Kahneman did with a businessman. And he, this, to get the same high that a businessman got from doing a $10,000 deal, his first $10,000 deal, over a couple of months, he now needs to do a $20,000 deal, and then a $40,000 deal, and then an $80,000, and then a one hundred and sixty, and then so forth. And very quickly, in a short matter of time, there's no amount of business or success or accumulation or achievement that can create the same dopamine hit and then he's stuck with that same feeling of emptiness and lack of importance that activated the entire drive in the first place. Every single, every single dopaminergic uh, trigger in our lives, whether it's work, whether it's obsessive thought, whether it's um, uh, shopping, food, uh, gambling, sex, all of them we habituate to, we habituate to very quickly, and they, they produce diminishing returns. And then we're stuck binging, needing more and more and more of the, you know, Game of Thrones episodes to create the same level of feeling of something exciting is happening in my life. But even more important than the fact that the rewards diminish over time, is that trying to escape negative emotions, as I said earlier, disempowers us. It makes us live stilted lives where we don't get our true needs met. If you can't feel loneliness, if every time we feel lonely, we start to drink, or we start to shop or go on uh, Amazon, if every time we start to feel that sense of loneliness, we'll never take an adaptive action to address our loneliness. We'll stay stuck, alone, constantly trying to escape it, but it's in feeling the loneliness that we finally say, fuck, I'm unhappy, I need to start taking the action to connect with other people. In trying to escape all of the 
negative emotional expressions of life, we wind up never addressing these messages which are communicating to us core important needs. If we can't feel anger again, then if we repress our anger, then we'll wind up in relationships again and again and again where we'll be mistreated. It's only by feeling the anger that we even start to have a chance of addressing these issues. Finally, in learning to, in trying to escape every time we feel natural disappointment, loss, lack of importance, uh, sadness, we start to live lives of conflict avoidance where we can't tolerate even uh, experiences that are fairly actually tolerable. Uh, for an example, I remember the first time that somebody used the word ghosting to me in counseling. And I thought it was totally extraordinary. It was uh, somebody was saying that they had met someone, that they had had a couple of dates, and then it, to their shock, the, 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 this guy just disappeared, you know, totally stopped returning their messages. And I was like, huh, well, sounds like he just couldn't have tolerate having a difficult conversation saying, you know what, this isn't working for me. So instead of just doing this very humane thing, he just completely disappeared. And then over time, over the last 15, you know, 12, 15 years, now, every single person I meet with in counseling has had ghosting happen to them frequently in their life. Not just with people they date, but with friends who just stop responding in the midst of conversations or with work colleagues who just suddenly disappear. Because endemically, the more we escape and we essentially tr we try to avoid difficult conversations, then we can't simply show up for slightly challenging conversations anymore. Our, the only thing we're left with is I'm just going to disconnect because it might be awkward to say, you know what, I'm not, this isn't working for me. Conflict avoidance makes our life smaller and it makes us less capable of sustaining real relationships because let me tell you, in relationships, there's a lot of conflict that has to be worked through. There's no way around that. <clears throat> the third truth is that there is a way forward to live a life that's not based on escapism, that's not based on avoiding, that's not based on fear, that's not based on the sense that uh, the solution to all of our discomfort is acquiring or working harder or, you know, uh, I'll be happy when I get my own apartment. Okay, I've got my own apartment, but I don't like the furniture. Okay, I've got my own apartment, I spend a lot of money, I've got nice furniture, but now I don't have a girlfriend. Okay, now I have a girlfriend and I'm miserable. <laughs> and that, that shame keeps going on and on, this idea that that sadness or loneliness is something that has to be solved by acquiring something. So the third truth is the way forward is putting aside this constant escape feelings, focusing on external solutions, and to learn to, one, turn towards our discomfort and be able to experience and resolve it through, simply through awareness 
the only external solution that the Buddha ever countenanced was something called Kalyanamita, which was connect, connecting with wise spiritual friends. That's the sole external solution he saw, he ex expressed to negative emotions. But the rest were all based on being able to process, feel, connect with, learn to essentially witness our suffering in a way that's not overwhelming. Turning towards rather than resisting growing old, rather than resisting the feelings of uh, sadness or loss, processing them, yielding into and embracing our life rather than trying to just have a life that's fun with all, all the challenging parts. From a Buddhist perspective, <clears throat> every human being, all of us, is an addict. We just don't know it. We are an addict, but for some of us, the addiction is in trying to have all of our misery solved by getting a relationship or getting the perfect job or getting the the right reputation or getting the perfect amount of followers on Facebook or getting or finally winding up in the perfect apartment. So the Buddha didn't see us as born without addiction. He saw the human condition as a condition of addiction until we learn to renounce our over-reliance. Now that doesn't mean I, I every night, after along with meditating every day and doing one-on-one -on -one counseling and going to the fucking gym and looking like a complete dork on every machine, but I, I also watch TV, right? You know, I like to eat food, but I don't do those things as a way to escape a feeling. When I notice that I'm feeling frustrated or angry, uh, or disappointed, a part of the work is to stop and to sit and be with that experience and to allow myself to be fully angry or sad or lonely or frustrated and to ask, put aside the story that wants to escape those feelings and just to be with the experience of being alive and to ask those feelings what they really want me to know what they're really trying to communicate. When we do this, we use everything in our life not as an addictive escape, but simply as a part of our life that brings us joy, but it's never fueled by this, this sort of reactive tendency of, oh, I am lonely right now, I have to eat. I, oh, I'm feeling uh, unimportant in my job, I have to shop. And of course, we don't even have those thoughts. The reaction is so fast. It just happens. And so part of this, the path is to become aware of when our addictions or our predilections are being driven by the fact that there's some unconscious, uncomfortable feeling that we desperately don't want to feel. So the fourth noble truth, the last, is how do we do this? How do we renounce all of our predilections to not feel our feelings, our emotional experience, and to embrace our life and to use all of the activities in a non-addictive way, non-escapist, in a way that's authentic. Well, the first 
it's broken down into three basic categories. One is wisdom, and that's simply understanding that at the end of the day, there's no amount of things we can buy, there's no amount of likes we can get on a social media, there's no amount of uh, uh, awards, or there's no amount of money that can alleviate our anxiety or our frustration or our disappointment. That all of that comes from setting our intentions in accordance with what does work. So what does work is there's two main groups. One is essentially leading a life that's harmless to others. Not being abusive, not uh, not trying to cause pain in other human beings, not trying to abuse people verbally, not trying to, not in any way trying to, um, uh, practicing self-kindness for ourselves as well as for others. This idea <coughs> has a lot of integrity to it. The more we live a life that's skillful and pro-tribal, one, we can actually connect with other people and address all of the causes of our negative emotions, which are generally caused by lack of secure relationships. But in an even deeper way, the real underlying, underpinning activations of sadness and all of our emotional, uh, our emotional life is due to the quality of our relationships with others. At the very heart, we're a social species. And the more we connect and bond in a, in a way that's authentic and vulnerable and where we express rather than trying to get things from others, where we don't try to exploit or treat others as objects, the more we activate the, your interior cingulate cortex, the whole social circuit in your brain that creates endorphins and serotonin that lifts your mood and makes you feel happy and good in your life. And that is sustainable. Unlike dopamine, which pops up and goes back down in a half an hour, serotonin, when it's secreted, it stays there for a significant period of time. As a culture, we tend to try to do this by giving people SSNIs, and that's fine. I've got no problem with it. But to the degree that we fail to live harmless, connective lives with others, it's just going to be a drop in the bucket. So a big, huge part of the path to happiness is just connecting with others in a way that's vulnerable, authentic, that's not abusive or harmful. And the other part is, of course, learning to self-soothe through meditation. Meditation does this in two ways. One, in mindfulness, we can break down all of the most painful experiences in our life into very small incremental chunks and learn to be with even the most overwhelmingly sad or, or gut-wrenching experiences because in mindfulness, we pull away all the thoughts and stories we overlay, and we just break down every experience into how does it feel in our breath? How does it feel in our body? What are the core emotional feelings that we experience when it's present? 
and what happens to our attention. So we go through this one by one, and if we learn to do this without listening to the thoughts, then every experience can actually be held, embraced, turned to, and learned from. What makes so much of our experiences in life overwhelming and makes it feel like we can't be with our loneliness or our our anger or our fear is that we tend to feel all of the parts of it at once, and so it feels overwhelming. We feel the, the body, the, we notice the attention jumping all over the place, and we cling to thoughts and ideas trying to explain why we feel this way. Lastly, concentration allows us to develop the ability to cultivate states of what's called parasympathetic rest and digest. The more you focus your conscious attention on your breathing, has been shown by uh, Sarah Lazar at Harvard, to give and provide the tools of activating states of calmness and even positive emotional states that are far more reliable than trying to accumulate those things externally. So when we can cultivate these two practices of concentration and mindfulness in a practice, we don't have to run anymore from our lives. We can turn towards our lives and learn from our feelings, integrate our emotions into our life, and thus all of the addictive, maladaptive behaviors begin to right-size themselves. And we start to use them just because we enjoy them, not because we are pushed again and again addictively towards something that at the end of the day is just escapist. So that's a whole bunch of words. Uh, I hope something in there was interesting. Now we're actually going to do the meditation that will enact the two practices of concentration and mindfulness that will allow us to turn towards our life and process difficult experiences rather than run from them. Closing the eyes. And just allow your body to come to a nice, upright, seated position. You can do this by just allowing your body to wobble from left to right, front to back, like your body's at top. And don't, don't use your thinking mind to push your body into a position. Just allow your body on its own to come to a, an upright position. And this is, when you feel your way into something, you're using your right hemisphere, which is very often shunted to the side. So just allow your body to come to what feels like a good position. And just take the um, chin and just lift it up just enough, like you're looking at a, you know, a moderately tall building. And the reason we're doing this is we're just trying to prevent your head from slouching in front of your chest.
And then we'll take some breaths to start the process of uh, self-soothing. So the key to <clears throat> switching your nervous system from um, mobilized alert state to a rest and digest, which is far healthier for you, is the exhalation. When we breathe in, the vagal break, which slows down your heart rate, goes off. So the heart rate soars, the blood pressure goes up. They <clears throat> we start to go into a more mobile alert state. When we breathe out longer, you switch yourself into the parasympathetic. So the longer your exhalations, the more likely you are to restore yourself to uh, engage, relax, state. So let's take a full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up, if you like, while you breathe in. Gently start to rotate them back, and as you breathe out through your mouth, drop the shoulders, you know, so that will hopefully let your arms just hang lifelessly, and hopefully your chest now will be slightly open. And you're telling your, <clears throat> you're sending a message up to the insula in your brain saying, hey, I'm, I'm not under any threat here. My chest is open and relaxed. And so the next full in-breath, pull in the abdomen or push it out, whatever feels more awkward to you. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, soften your belly. Don't hold it in, just really relaxed. <coughs> and of course the core vagal cluster of nerves is down in your abdomen. That's why we gen we often feel fear as a tight belly. So when you soften your belly, you're again sending messages up to your midbrain saying, I'm okay right now. Nothing going on. Open chest, relaxed shoulders, soft belly. And then the last part, breathe in and squinch all the muscles in your face, clench the teeth, lock the, pinch the nose, furrow the brow, get that ugly pinched face going, and then as you breathe out, so release the jaw and try to pull the corners of your mouth as wide apart as they can in a relaxed way, so you get a kind of Mona Lisa, unforced, relaxed face. Softening the micro-muscles behind or above the eyes. Unfurling the brow. And most importantly, if you want to soothe, encourage your eyes just to settle, to stop bouncing about behind the eyelids. Interestingly, when the eyes stop bouncing about, sends yet another message to the occipital and other lobes of the brain saying, hey, I'm okay. Nothing going on here.
Now for the next few minutes in silence, all we're going to do is practice focusing our attention on something that's actually present. So that could be the feeling of your body breathing. You might pay attention to your abdomen expanding and then releasing. You might pay attention to the sounds that are happening, the sounds of people walking upstairs, the sounds of people talking, people in the street, cars, not creating a story about what you're hearing or even any images, just hearing the sounds. You might notice the, uh, the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. <clears throat> All of these are experiences you're not adding to this present. Your body is breathing. Your occipital and other nerves are creating the lights behind your eyelids. The sounds are happening on their own. The only thing to not Keep in the forefront of your awareness is anything you are adding to this moment, such as thinking, memories, stories, worries about the future. And when those thoughts come up and they pull you away from your present experience, there's nothing wrong not a problem. Don't think you're doing anything wrong. It's just an opportunity for you to practice returning to your true home, what's happening right now in your life, what's happening right now in your body, what you're feeling right now. Again and again, there's nothing wrong with wandering off in thought a million times and then coming back a million times. Because when you, each time you return, relax back into the present, relax back into your true life. It's a version of awakening. Right now you've got nowhere to go, nothing to do. Your job is just to come to a complete stop, like the first day of a vacation. Just come to a complete stop.
If you're struggling in any way, just let go of trying to trying to meditate. Just land in this moment and just listen to the sounds and just feel your feelings. Don't try to do anything. All you're doing really is just putting aside any thought that takes you away from really embracing this moment in your life. And the way that looks can be entirely your own. There's no right, perfect meditation. It's just what works for you. Just keep bringing your awareness back to either the breath or the sounds or the lights. Again and again, just return to a present sensation that you're not creating.
So what we've just done is practice a very basic form of concentration, a way to self-soothe, create a greater degree of calm or tranquility in life. But if all we do is that, then we'll still be bypassing our feelings and our emotions. So the other practice is mindfulness. Mindfulness is how we learn to process and resolve emotions rather than running from them. So keeping the eyes closed, I'd like you to bring to mind a recent event that was uncomfortable, unpleasant, that in its aftermath left a wake of despairing, frustrated, frightened, worrying thought. Something that was difficult to bear. And whatever that event was, very often it involves other people, because we are a social species, but not necessarily. Just hold a very simple image of the event, or just enough of a, a memory of it, that you can start to feel some of the feelings in your body. that are yearning to be felt. So, for example, if you've had an uncomfortable argument with someone in a family or a roommate, a conflict in a relationship, bring that to mind. And then while that's present, instead of repeating the whole story of what happened and who was wrong, and instead I'd like you to bring your awareness to what's happening to your breath right now. Just breaking down the experiences, how it affects your breathing. For some of us, when we experience something unpleasant, the breath becomes shallower, quicker, fainter, we can barely feel it. Just observing this experience into how it affects our breath, and gently incline the out-breaths once again to be slightly longer not pushing out the air, just slowly releasing. Bring to mind, keep in mind something that triggers the memory, the state. And I'd like you now to bring your awareness to the feelings that this experience evokes. Feelings are largely felt in the front of the body, where the vagal nerve cluster is. So 
So when you remember this unpleasant, uncomfortable experience, what happens to the muscles in your face? Does your throat start to contract a little or does your chest feel more hollow or do the shoulders contract? Noting whether the stomach feels tight or loose. Where do you feel this experience? Just allowing the feelings to be there without pushing them away, without running from them. If there's any sense of hollowness or emptiness in the chest associated with loss, that's all right. Just be with it, attend it. And lastly, when you bring to mind this unpleasant event, now pay attention to what happens to your attention. Does it jump about? Does it start to feel sleepy? Does your mind start to feel really claustrophobic and tight? Does your Minds start to become anxious and seek a way to make it change. Just note, you've noted how it affects your breath. You've noted how it affects the feelings. And now just note how it affects the mind in the way it attends to life. And lastly, when you bring to mind this unpleasant experience, what are the quality of thoughts that arise? Is it a story of there's something wrong with me or this person or
Does your mind take it personally? Is there a story that appears that makes you feel isolated and alone? What is the level of interpretations you're adding? And how do these interpretations make or transform the experience? So letting any image or memory to fade away. Remembering now that you're in a room with other people. Bringing this awareness of your body, your internal experience with you as you very slowly, gradually open your eyes. Not letting the visual impressions of the world around you to push awareness of your body into the background to live a truly mindful life simply means that on an ongoing basis we check in with our feelings our body we integrate the messages they send us rather than try to run from them (laughs) 